We're looking at Jacob's reunion with Esau in this text of Genesis 33. From your bulletin outline, you'll note the first thing is that Jacob took precautionary measures in arranging or in preparing for this reunion. What a startling sight it must have been, as Moses indicates in verse 1, listen to this, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with 400 men. Boy, (laughs) I think that would be very disconcerting in light of the way Jacob thinks about Esau, the way he thinks that Esau is still thinking about him. 400 men traveling in this particular region of the the, uh, Palestinian area would create a lot of dust and dirt. He looks up, and there he is. Esau is on the horizon. Jacob had been alerted to this reality back in 32, verse 6. It says, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. But now that the reality has come, you see, it does not make it any easier on Jacob's nerves to have to face the obvious. Well, what's the obvious? Well, the obvious was that Jacob is a family. That's all he is. He is a family of two wives, two concubines, 11 children, and just enough servants to manage the various herds of livestock that Jacob owned. He is literally outnumbered hundreds to one. And the largest part of his entourage is women and children. Hardly a match against 400 men. So there is literally zero chance to mount a defensive strategy against so formidable a foe. This will be slaughter for sure if Esau still has vengeance in his heart. Towards Jacob. That said, Jacob did what he knew. That he, he did what he was capable of doing with the resources and know-how at his disposal. There's no brook to form a water barrier this time. There's nothing like that to shield his family from his brother's anticipated rage. And so he resigns himself in faith. This is what he do, does. He divides the children among Leah, Rachel, and two maidservants, verse 1. Those were his concubines, his lesser wives. Verse 2 gives the order. Concubines and their children out front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Many commentators believe that Jacob is playing the deceiver here again, using his wits in place of faith to protect his beloved Rachel and Joseph. But this makes no sense in light of the overwhelming force of 400 men At Esau's disposal. I want you to think about this. First in line to meet Esau. Or last in line to meet him. What is that against 400 men? Slaughter in the first minute or 60 seconds later. How is any any placement in the line an advantage? I believe instead that this is not a fear move on Jacob's part. But rather a faith move of the new man called Israel. Finally, his name, his new nature, behind that name change, and yes, he is Jacob to Esau, but he is Israel to God, 
and his actions here evidence a true faith that God has heard his prayer to save his family, which is given in 32 and verse 11, and was about to be faithful to his promise made to Jacob in 31 verse 3, wherein God commanded him to go back to the land of his fathers with this promise, I will be with you. I will be with you. Also restated in chapter 32 and verse 9. Well, if God is going to be with Jacob in this return to Canaan, there is no possibility of him and his family or his servants being exterminated by his angry brother or by any other foe. Observe further that prior to his last attempt to shelter his family from Esau's possible murderous rage, Jacob sent expensive gifts ahead to Esau to try to appease his anger, and he loaded, located his family and all of his servants beyond the brook Jabbok while he remained behind and alone. Chapter 32, verse 11. But where is Jacob now as he prepares to meet Esau? Verse 3. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Jacob is not cowering in the back of the line. No, he is out front, ready to face, come what may, with his estranged brother. He knew not what to expect, but he was trusting God to save him and his family and to keep his promise to get Jacob back safely to Canaan. What then could be the reason for dividing his family with the concubines and their children out front, then Leah and her children, then last Rachel and Joseph? Well, Jacob is still showing favoritism. Favoritism to Rachel, favoritism to her son, saying as it were, I'm saving the best for last, as he presented his wives and his children to Esau. You will recall that in later life, it is still Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph, which resulted in the brothers hating Joseph and selling him into Egyptian slavery. So he still has this uh, preferred love and affection for Rachel and her one son. Secondly, we observe the surprise, an utter surprise of Esau's reaction in meeting Jacob. While Jacob is bowing and scraping seven times over as he approaches Esau, those, those, that's all signs of humility, by the way, and it's a sign of repentance for his past ways of treating his brother. What does Esau do? Well, for his part, verse 4, he ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him, and they wept. Twenty years had passed between these two brothers, and in all that time there had been <clears throat> no communication and certainly no reconciliation. They had parted in fear and in anger, Jacob fleeing in fear for his life, and of course Esau so angry for being disenfranchised from the estate by Jacob's trickery, that he had vowed to kill Jacob after Isaac, their father, was deceased. But none of that seems to matter now. 
I mean, look at your text. The years of time had taken their toll, both on Jacob's fear and Esau's murderous intent. And they may not, and we may not forget that God is intervening here providentially. God is working this th- these things out. As Esau perused the various concubines and their children, then Leah and finally Rachel, he was curious as to who they were. And Jesus acknowledged them as gifts of God given to him. Verse 5. You see, he's speaking as a believer now. Oh, those, those are my kids. No, he does, he's not saying it that way. These are gifts from God that have come to me. He's right there with the psalmist in 127. Psalm 127. Children are a gift from the Lord, a heritage from the Lord. He's right there in that same believing faith. Their station in Jacob's family did not seem to matter. Firstborn, secondborn, children of a concubine, wife that was duly uh, official through marriage, or children of his two wives, Leah and Rachel, or Joseph, child of the beloved wife. None of this changed the fact that all 11 of them were the children of God that God had graciously given Jacob in the 20 years he and Esau had been at odds with one another. This is true reconciliation that's taking place. Even estrangement between these brothers did not mean that God had deprived them, you see, of families and of personal happiness. If you want to read Esau's extensive families in chapter 36, he had lots of children too. The Lord had blessed him with. So each of these men could vouch for the blessing of God, though only one acknowledged God. Important key key factor. The passing of years, the many miles which separated them, had not robbed them of their own filial blessings from God and provisions and sustenance and, and yes, even wealth, as we're going to see here in a minute. What I'm saying is God was taking care of Esau like he was taking care of Jacob. And Esau's not a believer. In fact, in the scriptures, he's called ungodly and immoral. Jacob is the believer. We look and see how God is blessing both. Now thirdly, observe Jacob's compensation for Esau's lost inheritance. Once these brothers were reconciled, Esau asked, verse 8, What do you mean by all these droves I met? He's referring to the livestock that uh, Jacob sent on ahead of him with his servants. So Esau says, what do you mean by all these droves that I met? This is a reference to Jacob assigning his lead servant, chapter 32, verse 17. When my brother meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. So, information was given. So you see, assuming that Jacob's servants had already explained the origin and the purpose of this large number of animals, it might seem redundant for Esau to ask another question in verse 8. But note carefully the way Esau phrased this question. He did not ask whose animals these were, He did not question that they are a gift to him from Jacob, 
Those questions had already been answered by the servants. What he asks is this, verse 8, Jacob, what do you mean by all these droves that I have now? There has to be, this is the way Esau's thinking, there has to be an explanation as to why Jacob would give Esau such a costly gift. Answer, says Jacob, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, verse 8, the last part, which seems a bit obscure to us, but which was crystal clear to Esau. How does a costly gift compute with Jacob's desire to find favor in Esau's eyes? Well, what Esau well remembers about Jacob's departure 20 years earlier is what he reiterated to his father Isaac. Esau said to his father Isaac, Isn't he, speaking of Jacob, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Chapter 27, verse 36. That's the way Esau saw it. and That's what made him angry. And so Jacob is viewed by Esau as a cheat, as a robber who through trickery and deceit had stolen Esau's headship over the clan and his fortune. And so Jacob is pictured then as a greedy, unrelenting man who was willing to use any and all means to enrich himself, even if it meant impoverishing his brother. So what's going on in our text 20 years later? What is the meaning behind the droves of animals Jacob's servants deposited at Esau's tent? Well, brethren, it's a peace offering. It's a peace offering from Jacob. To find favor in your eyes, Esau, in Jacob's words, is to compensate Esau for any and all losses he might have experienced because of Jacob's trickery and greed. Esau initially declined this offer, saying, verse 9, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But, but Jacob pressed his point, verse 10. No, please, I have, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face, the idea is in peace, <laughs> to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favor. And that idea, of course, is exactly what happened to Jacob as he saw the face of God and peace was made between him and God in that wrestling match that took place in chapter 32, verse 30. He says in verse 11, Please accept this present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Now, the Hebrew word here for present, this present that's being presented, is the same word found in chapter 27, verse 36, where Esau complained to Isaac that Jacob had tricked him by taking his blessing, his present. 
And so the reality in our text is that Jacob is repaying Esau for what he now confesses had been a stolen blessing from Esau. This harks back to chapter 32, verse 13, in which Jacob spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. And we, we looked at that. Over 550 head of livestock. In short, Jacob is doing the math. He did the math, and he calculated what a reasonable profit in livestock Esau should have made had Jacob not chated him out of the family blessing. And Jacob compensates Esau with that percentage of material blessings with which God had blessed him all the years that they were apart. In other words, he's making restitution. Wonderful. Isn't that the sign of a converted heart? It is, brethren. A changed heart. Jacob isn't thinking, hey, God blessed me with all this livestock. They're mine. I don't have to share them with Esau. Yeah, God did bless Jacob with all this livestock. That does, that's beside the point that he robbed Esau of the blessing. And so the, this is a man that is acting as a, a repentant, making restitution for all those years. Then lastly, we see the parting of Esau and Jacob on amicable terms. This is wonderful. In verse 12 and following, Esau proposed to accompany Jacob the rest of the way on his journey, but Jacob begged off on the basis that his children were young and could not travel speedily. Same for the young uh, livestock, which were still nursing. And he says in verse 13, if they are driven hard, just one day, all the animals will die. So this was very reasonable. Next, Esau offered some of his men to accompany Jacob, which he also declined, saying, just, just, just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord, verse 15. I'm just happy that we're able to part amicably, that, that you don't hate me anymore, you're not going to try to kill me anymore. But I'm happy about that. Verse 16 tells us that Esau then went on his way back to Seir, S-E-I-R, that's southeast of the Dead Sea. It's in Edom, Edom territory. It is in Esau's country. But Jacob turned westward to a town he built for himself, which he named Succoth, which means shelters, because he built holding pens there for all of his livestock. So it's the town of Succoth, the town of the shelters. From Succoth, Jacob arrived safely, there's God's promise, at the city of Shechem. If you look on a map, Sakath's here, Shechem's right there. It's just a short distance to the new town. But Shechem is in Canaan. And there he camped within sight of the city, verse 18. For a hundred pieces of silver, he purchased a plot of land large enough to pitch a tent on, but not large enough to build a large estate, which he's not about to do. He's not into that. He's into what the scripture says in Hebrews. They journeyed in the land. They didn't build mansions and so forth, but they traveled in tents. They were pilgrims. And that's all to remind us, you see, that we're in the same boat. What's happening to us today in terms of our physical, geographical environment is all temporal. This is not heaven. We're on our way. 
We will one day be absent from the body and present with the Lord, but it's not here and it's not now. And it'll never be here and it'll never be now. There's something far better awaiting us. And so the patriarchs lived that way. They lived with light fingers on the things that they possess, willing to see them go if, if need be, because that's not what they were living for. In the town of Shechem, there he set up an altar, which he named El Elohe Israel. Mighty is the God of Israel. Mighty is the God of Israel. He uses his new name, you see. And he uses the name of God, and he says, this is my God. It's not just Abraham now. It's not just Isaac's God now. It's my God, and my God, wow, the God of Israel. Mighty is he. We look at this text as we go on and we ask the question, what about Jacob's lie on this occasion? He told Esau, verse 14, oh, I'll, I'll come, uh, you, you don't have to send men with me or anything like that. I'll come and I'll meet you there at Seir. Um, I'll be with you in a little while. When obviously he had no intention of doing that. Seir is southeast, whereas Succoth is southeast. West and Shechem just to the northwest. So this goes to prove that even God's people can fall back into their old sinful patterns. He told a lie. For whatever reason, he chose to lie to Esau. Instead of being up front with him, perhaps there was still some timidity there. I don't know. But here's to his credit. Jacob was not about to be pressured by his brother to go to Seir when God had commanded him to return to Canaan. That's where he was to end up. Sometimes we have to obey, not sometimes, always we're to obey God rather than man, even if the man is your brother, and even if there's a filial love and attraction there. I know of a number of stories. I know of one family in Ohio from a church. Whenever the brothers got a job, they, they were entrepreneurs, so... They would move from place to place with, uh, with their business whenever they set it up. But they all moved as a family. You know, it wasn't just one man saying, well, you know, I'm going over here and set up the shop. I'm going down over this state. They have a better tax uh, position for us. Well, I'll go, I'm going over there and set up. See you guys. No, the whole family moved and, and took the whole business and set up. You don't see that very much anymore in our disjointed society. But here we have Jacob saying, you know, I've been reconciled to my brother. We've parted company amicably. No one's hurt, has hurt feelings or anything like that. But I'm just not going to go down there and live in Edom. I'm not going to live in the plains of Seir. God called me to Canaan. Now that brings us to the end of the narrative and what lessons might we take to heart from Esau and Jacob's reunion? Well, let me suggest several. Number one, God will sometimes place us, yes, us, in overwhelming hostile situations to teach us that our protection is in God. It's in God. 
I'm reading this text and I'm saying, why Esau traveled all the way from Seir, which is southeast of the Dead Sea. You got maps in the back of your Bible. Take a look at that. Southeast of the Dead Sea. To meet Jacob with 400 men. That seemed a little excessive. I don't think we know. Perhaps the trade routes used in those days were fraught with pirates and thieves and murderers, which they were. Perhaps, too, he was apprehensive about Jacob's entourage. What does he know about Jacob? Perhaps he, too, has a large military force at his disposal. We don't know. All we know is that Esau was well-armed, and the whole thing was frightening to Jacob and his family because... They had no army of men to protect them. They only, if I can say it this way, they only had God's promise protection. Seems almost blasphemous to say that. Can I say it this way? Jacob, as it were, was boxed in to God's providence. God would have to step in God would have to resolve any hostilities. And you can see that this alternative required faith in God to come through with his promise. Not everyone has this kind of faith. But for those who do, it will calm your heart and dispel fear. I mean, it's such a contrast between Jacob the deceiver and all of that business with Laban, living with Laban and so on and living by his wits, to what we see now as a result of his encounter with God. He seems to be calm, collected, able to trust God instead of his own wits. In the days of Elisha, the kingdom of Aram was at war with Israel, but every time the king of Aram set up an ambush, we read time and again, Elisha, the prophet, Warned the king, that is the king of Israel, so that he was on his guard in such places. 2 Kings 6 verse 10. Verse 11 and following. This enraged, I'm reading scripture. This enraged the king of Aram. And he summoned his officers and he demanded of them, Will you tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers, but... Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. <laughs> Ooh. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. 2 Kings 6, 11 through 13. And... True to his word, the king of Aram then sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and they surrounded the city. 2 Kings 6 verse 14. So Elisha and the people living in Dothan became captives in an overwhelming hostile environment with seemingly no way out. Well, Elisha's servant became Absolutely terrified. And he said to Elisha, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? You and I would be scared out of our boots as well. 
a large, well-equipped army of hostile soldiers against a small town of ordinary defenseless citizens. Why would God permit such a thing on his people? What about Elisha's reaction? Well, was he shaking in his boots? Was he pacing the floor? Was he wringing his hands, repeating ominous woes? Oh me, oh my, oh this is terrible. We're about to be exterminated in a flash. What recourse do we have? We are doomed, we are doomed. No, none of that. Instead, Elisha calmed his fearful servant, saying, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 2 Kings 6, verse 16. And then Elisha prayed. And here's his prayer. O Lord, open my servant's eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, second prayer, strike these people with blindness, and so he struck them with blindness as Elijah, as Elisha had asked, 2 Kings 6, verse 17 and 18. The context tells us that Elisha led these blind soldiers to the capital city of Samaria, where once inside, God opened their eyes to reveal that they were now the captives. The king of Israel wanted to kill them all. I got them behind my, my walls, I got them behind the gates. They're in my city now. He wanted to kill them all, and Elisha intervened. What happened next was the captives were fed, to the ca and they were released to go home. That's the mercy of God. That's the mercy of Christianity. It's not the way of the Muslims. It's not the way of Islam. But it is the way of Christians. Despairing happened again in Jerusalem under the siege by Sennacherib, again with Daniel in the lion's den, again with the friends of his in the fiery furnaces of Nebuchadnezzar's construction, proving to all the wisdom of Isaiah's warning. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitudes of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Our protection, brethren, is ultimately in the hands of God. And so sometimes God puts us in places of very difficult and dangerous positions that we might trust in God, not in horses, not in chariots, and so forth. A second lesson here is that faith works with reason, leading us to take every precautionary measure to protect our families from evil. You say, aren't you now counteracting what you just said in lesson one? No, these go together. If Jacob, now named Israel, was a man of faith since his encounter with God, why did he protect his family from the assumed rage of his vengeful brother by sending them across the brook Jabbok originally, and later as he put them in the rear of his vast herds of livestock 
far from the reach of Esau? Or to ask it another way, is it, is it a lack of faith in God to take such precautionary measures? Are we failing to trust God when we do this? There's always, brethren, this tension between faith and human actions, but it is right, it is not right to pit these two things against one another. And fortunately, there is an entire book in the New Testament dedicated to this issue, and it is the book of James. And James gives us this scenario, and here's what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but he has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, keep well fed. He's giving out benedictions, you see. But does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it, does not, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. James 2, 14 through 17. And then verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James is teaching us that faith in God is not negated by righteous deeds, but is actually proven or confirmed by such. We do what we know to be right and sane and reasonable, and that proves our faith to be genuine. We're not calling for God to come in and do a miracle every time there's a need. When we have the means of meeting that need ourselves, by faith. Do you know that right now in the United States of America there is a debate raging on the provision of the Second Amendment? Let me read the Second Amendment for you. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The argument is put to believers that we cannot possibly believe in God if we practice arming ourselves with a weapon to protect ourselves and our families. God's word, however, tells us that there is such a thing as evil in the world and evil men in the world, people in positions of authority in the world who will use their power to exterminate not the bad guys, which is their job, according to Romans 13, but anyone and everyone who would oppose their wicked plans. That's just our reality. Our modern world, our modern world has seen two world wars, the Korean War, the Vietnamese War, the Gulf War, and many other local skirmishes, and in the past, a revolutionary war and a civil war. Additionally, we now face Islamic Jihad, where Christians are beheaded, are burned alive in steel cages for refusing to conform to Sharia law, Muslim law. These atrocities have not escaped the notice of God, who for purposes known only to him, he has allowed to go on. Maybe to purge his church for sin, maybe to awaken us 
that the world is not peaceful and loving, but it is a world that is full of evil and sin. Just this week, Obama was petitioned to label the atrocities in these Islamic states as genocide. He has refused to do it. Because it's Christians that are being martyred in these countries. And he is silent on the issue. So what would be good, what would, what, what would that do to label it as genocide? It brings world attention to the fact that Christians are being put to death for no other reason than their faith, for practicing their faith. Now in this matter, everyone wants to quote Jesus' words to Peter. For all who draw the sword, if you're drawing the sword, you're the aggressor. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Matthew 26, verse 52. And Jesus did say that to Peter. But they ignore or forget Jesus' teaching the night of his betrayal by Judas and his arrest by the government authorities that we find in Luke 22, verse 35 and following. Then Jesus asked them, that is his disciples, when I sent you without a purse, without a bag, without sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. And he said to them, but now. Trans see transition? But now. If you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. I'm still reading Jesus' words. He was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching to its fulfillment. And the disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Luke 22, verse 35. They've already stepped into the idea of arming themselves. Because why? Because he's being numbered with transgressors. And they are in, an, in imminent danger themselves. May I say that such actions support a living faith in God. We believe his word about evil around us. Jesus said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Matthew 10, verse 16. Jesus is saying, do you know the world that you're living in? Here it is. I'm sending you out. You're my sheep. I'm the shepherd of the sheep. John 10, we've been studying that on Sunday night. Where am I sending you? I'm sending you to an environment that is full of wolves, ravenous wolves. Get the comparison. A ravenous wolf and a sheep. Wolf, sheep. The wolf's going to tear you apart. He's going to eat you up unless you have means of defending yourself. Not a lack of faith. We're trusting God. We're saying, yeah, you're right, Lord. Uh, we believe we, we are living in a hostile world. We are living in a dangerous world. Number three. We can learn here that happy homes can be experienced by, get it now, unbelieving families. 
But without God's salvation, deep sorrow is inevitable. Unbelievers like Esau put a lot of stock for happiness on how well they get along with each other or how well off they are financially. Esau could say to Jacob, truthfully, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Chapter 33, verse 9. And it was true. Esau was living proof of Jesus' teaching about God the Father. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Luke 6, verse 33 through 36. Again, Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5, verse 44. Or again, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. and He will reward him for what he has done. Proverbs 19, verse 17. Did you ever think about that? I know this verse was in the Bible. So I did this study. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Wow. The apostles told the Lyconians, God has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Acts 14, verse 17. That's our God. Jesus taught his disciples, watch out and be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And they, he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop and he thought to himself, hmm, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, oh, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Luke 2, 12, verse 15 through 20. Job's observation is this. Why do the wicked live on? growing old and increasing in power. They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. 
Their homes are safe. Their homes are free from fear. The rod of God is not upon them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of tambourines and harp. They make merry to the sound of the flute. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. Yet, they say to God, Leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we, what would we gain by praying to him? You see, they're saying that, they're basically saying, I, I have all that I want, all that I need. I don't need God in my life, right? What, what, what am I going to gain by praying? I have it all. But, says Job, their prosperity is not in their own hands. And so I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. Yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them, the fate God allots in his anger? How often are they like straw before the wind, like chaff swept away by a gale? It is said, God stores up a man's punishment for his sons. Let him repay the man himself so that he will know it, says Job. But let his own eyes see his destruction. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about the family that he leaves behind when his allotted months come to an end? Job is saying, here's a family man who has regard for no one but himself, not even his family. The, the Lord has blessed him. The Lord has blessed his family. Even though he holds his fist in the face of God and he says, leave me alone. Even though it can be said, he has no desire to know God's ways. Once again, God is kind and good and gracious to evil men. So that even people like Esau can have a family. And crops and livestock, and money in the bank. These things are also available for the believer, if God so blesses. But here's the difference. The believer sees all of those things as a blessing from God. And the unrighteous, in this case Esau, see them as the due strength of their own work, their own prowess, their own ability. Both men are blessed. One has God and eternal life, and the other forfeits his life to his God idol, money, and greed. They have the plenty of this world's good, as Esau says in his own words, but they're not rich toward God. How sad is that? 
Psalmist says, if a man by his strength lives to be 70 years old, maybe by his strength 80 years old. My dad's 100 years old. But I say, even with regard to dad, what's that compared to eternity? People will sell their soul for a whole lot less than what Esau possessed. If you're without Christ today, then you're not rich towards God. It's only in Christ that sinners are made kings and princes and princesses. Only in Christ that we're made to rule over the kingdoms of the earth, which is yet to come. Without Christ, you're impoverished. Oh, no, I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. Yeah, you're broke. You're impoverished. It's destined for the, wor to the, for the world that Christ is coming, and when he comes, all of those temporal things that people hold on to for security will perish in flames, dust, ashes. Back to zero. And without God, less than zero. Our Lord, we pray for those that are struggling today spiritually. Maybe they're like Esau. Maybe they can boast to the Jacobs of the world, the Israels of the world. Maybe they can boast, hey, I have plenty. Keep what you have. I've got plenty. I don't need anything from you. Oh, but they do need something from, from uh, the Israels of the world. They need to know God by faith. They need to have a heart change, as did Jacob. So long as they dig in and think that what they have and say things like, God, leave us alone. God, I have no desire to know your ways. God, who is the Almighty that I should serve him? God, what would I gain by praying? That shows utter ignorance. Ignorance of their present state, however rich they might be, and ignorance of their future state, how impoverished they will be. Lord, grant to us a realistic picture. James says, when we look into the mirror of the word of God, we should see ourselves for what God see, shows us. And then when we walk away from that mirror, we should believe what we saw and not forget it. Because people of the world are convicted at times by the preaching of the gospel. That's the word coming to them. And then they do walk away and they forget what they saw. They forget they saw a great need for their souls. They saw a great need to repent of their wickedness before God and claim Christ as Savior. They saw it, they saw it, they saw it. And then they walked away and returned to wallowing in the mire with the pigs. Lord, if that's someone here today or in Radio Land, we pray that you will bless them with repentance and faith, that today you might draw them into your presence and help them to see that despite the fact that God is good to unrighteous and wicked men, they ought not to think of that material blessing or that family blessing as being the same as salvation, as being the same as though they were right with God. 
He does this with wicked men. But there's so much more that is needed. Honor and bless your word, we pray, and honor Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is also from Trinity, number 80 in the Red Book. Eight, oh, let's stand together as we sing. Just a reminder that um, latest retreat is coming this week. Uh, Donna would like to go, but I can't have her drive down there by herself. So if any of you are willing to go, we're willing to provide the gas in the car. Just see her about that. And then tonight, no choir, uh, but we will be having our Bible study at 6 o'clock and our uh, fellowship time downstairs. We'll see you then.